I have this concept that I like to tell people or teach people about, and it's the, the art of potential, right? And we have our known limits, right? What we actually know is one box that we all live in, right? Those the, is, we can see the edges of that box because we're inside of it, right? And like the biggest example of that is like the, uh, you know, the four minute mile. Everyone knew before the 1960s that you couldn't run faster than a four minute mile. But outside of that box is what, where the actual human potential really is. It's like our known potential and then our real potential. And our real potential is some other box that we can't see the edges of. And one of the things that's been really fascinating to watch over the last 20 years is we are seeing in every category of you know, human experience that we are pushing the edges of what we know our capabilities are. And we're exploring and expanding our potential. And so, you know, now if you don't run a four minute mile, you're not even competitive, right? And, and so we're seeing that happen in just like every sort of category. And so <laughs> bringing it back to martial arts, you're seeing a lot of those same things. Yeah. Like how does what we're learning about nutrition impact what we're capable of doing in and outside of the dojang with martial arts? What about what we're learning about stretching and muscle development and how it's built and how the brain actually builds, you know, pathways for repeating motion. Like, you know, some of those things, like we actually understand them now and have the science behind it where we didn't before. And so we're able to push the edges of what our actual potential is capable of. And so, you know, that's where like, because we're in yeah. this really advanced stage of being able to innovate, it's really important to keep, okay, those traditions as well, right? And that's where it's like, we could really blind ourselves to the traditions of what we already know if you're not careful about it. And so anyways, that's where one of the things I've been really enjoying about your class and your teaching style here at Fair Academy is that you do teach both of those things, but you have like, there's no fear of the innovation and there's no fear of the tradition. You can use both of those things and really create a holistic person, right? And unlimited you. Welcome to the Unlimited You podcast. Believing firmly in the limitless potential that resides within each individual, your host, Master Victor Almeida, a distinguished martial arts expert is here to guide you in unlocking your inner power. Each episode offers practical knowledge from strength training techniques to the calming practices of meditation, tailored to enhance your physical, mental, and spiritual well-being. Join us on this empowering journey and embrace the warrior that lies within you. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of The Unlimited You. Today, we're going to be talking about the journey of mastery, going from novice to an expert, specifically in martial arts, and what that looks like, what that entails, how long it takes, and, you know, everything you want to know about the journey. And if we don't cover anything, you can always leave a comment, send us an email, get more information on it. Today, we have Richard Matthews again with us today to talk about all our little training goodies. Hello, welcome. Thanks for having me back on the show. Yeah, yeah go, go ahead. I, I, the internet was going a little slow there. I couldn't hear you. I said, uh, thanks for having me back on the show. Absolutely. It's a pleasure. Today, I guess we can start off with, you know, defining mastery. What is mastery? So you'll hear a lot of, you know, people speaking about, oh, I've mastered this specific technique or I've mastered this art. And a lot of People, at least from my perspective, don't understand what the word mastery really means. And, you know, sometimes people will get to an advanced or intermediate stage and they think they've mastered something. Now, mastery to me requires years for you to truly master something, right? And not only understanding where it came from, the technique involved in whatever you're trying to master, but I would also say that mastery entails 
doing something without requiring all that initial thought required in doing it at the novice stage. So, you know, for martial arts, for example, we do a lot of kicks, especially in Taekwondo, right? Yeah. Once you get to the level where you can do your kick without having to, you know, think about bringing your knee up and snapping it, you can do it in your sleep and do it perfectly at speed with perfect precision or near perfect precision. That is, I think, the closest we can get to mastery, if that makes sense. What do you think about that? I think that it makes a lot of sense. And I know that like the journey for mastery, like I, I am definitely still in, I don't know where you would consider it, but I still consider myself pretty novice on the, on the Taekwondo. But there are several other skills that I have mastered. And you go through that process of, you know, in our family, we call it the great suckitude, right? Where you just aren't good at it. And you have to go through that where you have easy skills that you just have to learn how to do. You have to just, what would the word, you have to like slog through and just sort of learn how to do the things and teach the brain the aspects that you need to know. And you move forward with each of those things until you eventually get to the point where it just becomes easy. And then once it becomes easy, you can continue to refine it. And then it becomes something you don't even have to think about. And once you get to that point, then you can, that's where you've like, you've achieved the mastery where it's just second nature to do those things and to do them correctly. Yeah, absolutely. Where especially that second nature aspect of it, where you're not really having to think about it. Now in Taekwondo, I try to break up the novice intermediate and advanced stage into belt levels so the novice stage is essentially white belt to even green belt there's some green belts that will kind of start to play a little bit with that intermediate stage and then intermediate's really from about green belt to you could even say red belt once you attain red belt it's red for a reason it represents danger so you somebody who gets to red belt they know enough that they can seriously hurt somebody and they're getting into the real advanced techniques of taekwondo after red belt consider that advanced techniques you're learning more difficult kicks more difficult movement and you know once you get your black belt in taekwondo specifically we consider you a trained student so you haven't mastered anything you know, i don't care how good you are you haven't really mastered anything and after that black belt, it takes about, let's say, four to six years, depending on, you know, how you're training, how often you're training, four to six years to attain that black belt. For you to get from first degree to fourth degree, it takes five to seven years, depending on how quickly you're moving. It takes about two years between each degree for the first and two. And then from three to four, it takes about three, two to three years in between each one of those. And that takes some time in really refining the basics of what you started as a colored belt. And we can go a little bit more into the details of each one of those stages. But I remember, you know, when we first started training together, you were like, I'm in this for the long run. You know, I know it's going to take a while. And that's kind of the mentality that it really takes to get good at martial arts is knowing that it's going to take you a long time to really understand the complexities of it and to let those complexities, you know, essentially be based down into basicness eventually, you know, it becomes, everything becomes basic. It just becomes what you do. And yeah. I, I would agree you're still at that novice stage, but you are, I would say at the more advanced development of the novice stage, you're getting ready to transition into the uh, intermediate techniques. You know, how, how has that journey been so far for you? you know, through that novice stage and in, in, in learning the basic techniques and the basic movements that we've gone over. So it's really interesting for me because, you know, at my stage in life, I've got a few 
aspects of my life that I've been through the mastery journey before, right? And so like you have this mastery timeline and for like from novice to expert in martial arts. And what I've sort of realized over the course of my life is that mastery sort of looks the same in a lot of different categories. And once you've done it, you sort of know the process. And so I see the same sort of timeline. And, you know, like one of the things I do is a lot of persuasive writing and, persu you know, like copywriting and stuff for businesses. And, you know, the first couple of years you're doing that, it was, I was terrible at it. You never got any results. And you get to the point now where it's just easy. And like all of my communication generally comes out, uh, you know, it, at a base level is pretty persuasive because I've been doing it for 20 years. And I know it's the same kind of thing with the martial arts that when I first started doing it, I was like, this is really hard. And it's hard to get your hands to do the things that you need them to do. It's hard to remember like, like every little motion that we do has all sorts of like tiny minute things like the positioning of your feet and which part of your hand is, is flexed and which one isn't. Like one of the things that you taught us was the, you know, you flex the, the three fingers, right? Your first two and your thumb knuckle and then the relaxed last two. That took forever for me to like just be able to remember to do that. And now it's getting to the point where like every time I make a fist, it just defaults into that position. And the thing that I've recognized is that anything that's worth mastering is worth putting at least 10, of your, 10 years of your life into. And so I know that was a discussion that we had at the very beginning. It was like, hey, if I'm going to train with you, I want to know that like you're here for the long haul and I want you to know that I'm here for the long haul, right? I want to actually put in the time and the effort to be a master of this because I want to master my body and master my fitness and master those kind of things. And knowing that I'm going to have to go back to the part that is hard, right? And I find it useful as yeah. for me, like as a parent, to show my kids that I'm willing to go back into that novice stage to learn new things, right? Because they're doing that all the time now, right? They're doing it with like learning to read and learning to write and learning to do the dishes and learning to do all sorts of different things. And it's hard and you see them struggle with it. So I like that aspect of it too, where I'm able to show them me struggling with new skills <laughs> and going through that novice stage. Because if you want to learn anything, you have to go through that novice, intermediate, expert, master stage, that timeline always sort of fits no matter what skill you're working on picking up. Yeah, and depending on the skill that you're learning, that could, you know, be a few months, it could be a few years. For martial arts, it's definitely a few years. And yeah. in that novice stage, we're really learning some of the basic techniques that later on we're going to essentially be building on top of. And this is one of the biggest things I stress is when you're learning the basics, you want to spend a lot of time. And the basics is oftentimes underrated because people want to get to the flashy kicks they want to get to all this cool looking stuff but what really comes in handy especially in a self-defense scenario is those basic techniques that we're learning for example your front kick learning to bring the knee up snap and put it down really fast right learning to do that well you know keeps people from grabbing your leg and then you apply that to your roundhouse kick your side kick and all these different kicks that you're going to learn but it requires at that novice stage you know, doing these techniques slow so you do them correctly and doing these easier techniques that doesn't require as much, I guess, control or awareness over your body to get that control and awareness. Whereas when we get to the intermediate stage, which you guys have kind of started to experience, you know, we're working a little bit more on, on speed in confusing your brain and getting it to work at a different, I guess, level or pace than, you know, that technique refinement working on using that technique at a higher pace that can then be more effective in a self-defense situation where you know at the novice stage we're doing we're breaking things down really easy you know we're getting now more complicated we're putting different techniques together we're adding more stepping drills and 
at first, just like in that novice stage, it's very confusing. You start doing these things, you're like, uh, 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 and you have to accept that you're going to suck at first at it. That's like, I think one of the hardest things for people is they, they come to martial arts expecting them to be like the best person ever. And it's hard. It's really hard. And, you know, it feels goofy. It feels weird. You're putting your body in all these different situations, right? And it's learning to become comfortable with the uncomfortable. And then eventually that becomes natural. And, you know, that, that's kind of where we're at right now, where your training is we're taking these slower techniques, we're making them faster, we're adding more complexity to them, and we're transitioning from that, you know, novice stage, which takes about depends on the training a year or two depending on you know how often you're training you guys are moving pretty fast where we're getting to the more complex development you know we're learning how to control different parts of your body and you mentioned you know focusing on the the three the three fingers that you're squeezing for your punch you know now we're going to be even refining that where we're delaying the twist of your punch. We're learning to turn the hips more and developing more power in our strikes. And we're getting into the more complex areas of that technique refinement. And like you're saying, with almost any other art or any other technique that you're learning, it takes years, right? Especially this intermediate portion can be one of the, I guess, most extended areas of study for a lot of people. They'll, you'll spend a lot of time between green belt and red belt. And that's because you're learning a lot of the techniques that are really difficult. And once you get a good grasp on them, then we get to the advanced stage. And for a lot of people, the advanced stage is a lot more fun because you know, you're throwing more flashy kicks. You're doing things at a higher level. And what I consider advanced is taking an intermediate move and making it more complex. So for example, we have what's called a hook kick. You basically bring your leg up, hook it around and that can be a headshot where we take that move and now we're adding a jump spin to it, a jump spinning hook kick or a butterfly hook kick. So we're making an intermediate move more complex and that complexity allows you to use it in different situations, right? You're then also working on yeah, refining the basic move at an intermediate level. So where, you know, you're working on your front and your roundhouse kick and your side kick, you're also doing that at the advanced level. Because if you don't work on those basic kicks, that'll start to wash off. So you'll notice, especially recently, our warm up is the basic kicks. So we'll do front axe and round kick as a warm up, where that used to be our workout. And then we get into the, you know, the heavier stuff where you guys have developed the endurance to last that training. Yeah, absolutely. And I find it interesting too, the, as you progress and you get to the more advanced techniques, it feels like, and it's, it's, I see this in a lot of different skills too. You, you have to learn the rules, like the basic rules, right? I have, to, I have to learn how to throw a punch before I can start refining it, right? I have to learn how to make that basic movement to, to and then you can start adding things like, okay, then you focus on how you're flexing your fist or how you're twisting your arm or how you're moving your hips with it. But like, you have to learn the basic movement first. Uh, before you can start stacking other skills onto it. And like, you know, I, I've been doing a photography for 20 years, the same thing I always tell people, you have to learn the rules first before you can learn to break them. Like you want to have straight horizons, you want to follow the rule of thirds. And then if you, once you've learned how to follow those rules, then you can learn how to creatively break them or to make them more advanced as you, the way that you talked about it in, in martial arts is you're going to add more things to them, more complexity, but you can't add the complexity until you understand the basics. Like, and you have to understand the basics really well 
so that you know how to do the more advanced things. Exactly. And that, that sturdy foundation, you know, just like in any art, allows you to, you know, develop a style, essentially. You're, like, you're learning, you know, how to do a front kick. Maybe you want to do it faster. Maybe you turn a little bit. And those differences in how everybody does it becomes essentially your style. At an intermediate level, at an advanced level, people start to set into a unique style of doing things, right? You start to see how different people perform each technique. And then you start, oh, that looks cool. Let me add, let me try and add it a little bit into mine. So not only are we refining and learning different techniques, but we're also kind of embedding ourselves into a school of style. And, you know, that's a good thing at first. Once you get to mastery, we want to let go of style completely. But that's going to be a later development. And I, I initially think that developing a style is a good thing, although it can be restricting once you get to a higher level. And yeah. this kind of touches into the aspect of yeah. flow state, right? So in any situation, we want to be extremely dynamic in how we perform and go about that situation. And if you are stuck in a style, like if I'm constantly in my fighting stance this way and maybe someone gets close and I need to switch to a Muay Thai fighting stance, it's a whole different style, right? Yeah. I'm not going to be able to do that if I'm so yeah. caught up in my Taekwondo style. You know, I'm going to have, the, someone's going to find holes. They're going to see my timing. And we want to be dynamic in our usage of martial arts by entering what a lot of people call the flow state. And we do that through refining the technique to a point where you don't have to think about it, right? You surrender to the subconscious. And when you do that, you cut down on the processing speed of thought, right? So we're immediately taking in information and without thinking it gets done, right? We're taking away that processing speed that's limited by our brain. And that allows us to really transcend technique, really transcend strength levels and refinement of reflexes and instinct right so we're completely relying on instinct here and that takes a lot of training that's why i say it was one of the last developments in the advanced stage is once you have really practiced your hard techniques once you've done the refinement you've developed some sense of style is getting to unlock that flow state in almost any manner you know and i'm sure you've experienced this yeah. maybe while you know, on a call yeah. or doing other things in your life, you get in this zone where everything just kind of channels into it. I have that in, in writing, right? I've been doing writing for so long that, and I, and to your point, mastered several different styles of writing from persuasive writing to educational writing to several different pieces, like styles of writing now that they've just come really easily. And it's the kind of thing that like, once, once you've gotten to the point where you've mastered it, you can sit down and, and when you can do that flow state, you can just write and, you know, I can write 2,500, 5,000, 7,000 words in an evening and have really good content that is, it's like almost ready to publish, just needs a little bit of, you know, maybe a, a minor bit of editing at the end, right? Because you've just got, it's something you've been doing for so long that it's, it's instinctual, right? So if I want to sit down and write a blog post or I want to write a newsletter or I want to write a copywriting piece or I want to write anything, I can just sit down and do that because I've been through that you know, 20 year mastery timeline journey from, you know, novice to expert and mastered several different styles. And I can jump into and out of different styles for whatever I need and creative storytelling and whatnot. And I know that like, I see the same process happening in our martial arts stuff in a couple of different ways. So one, I see it on my side, like where I'm at, 
And, you know, I can tell that I'm novice and I'm still working on those real basic movements, but you also demonstrate everything for us. And every time I see you demonstrate for us, I'm like, man, it's just so simple for you that sometimes I even have to like ask you, be like, okay, you did something there and you didn't mention what it was you did. You mentioned like four or five things, but I also saw you do something with your foot and you looked down and be like, oh yeah, you're right. I'm also doing this other thing because it's, it's so easy for you and you've been doing it so long that it's not every single tiny little aspect of what you're doing is forefront until someone who's watching you do it and trying to replicate it is going, okay, I saw you do all, like 90% of the things you explained and this one thing you didn't explain, what was that, right? And it's that mastery coming in um, where it's just so natural um, for you to do those things. Um, and particularly with like your foot movements and your breathing um, that like I still have to like think about how I'm placing my feet on the ground and how I'm breathing with every movement. I know like in class yesterday, I was talking like, every time I do this, I find myself really tensing up my abs and then not being able to breathe. And you're like, oh, yeah, that's it. Here's how you can help fix that, right? And I don't know, like I, I can just see that, see the difference from someone who's a novice and working with someone who's a master. Yeah, and th this, that's kind of something that a lot of people in the advanced stage will get confused about. They'll get to this point where, you know, they, they feel that all that comfort in those areas. Like they know where to put their feet, they know how to move, they feel like they got a good kick. Maybe they can beat everybody in their school in sparring or forms, right? But the, the world is a lot bigger than the people we experience in our school. And yeah. the skill level is very big once you get to that advanced level it, it is and this is where the the lifelong development of martial arts is key right once you get to a certain level there's endless refinement and a lot of people don't see that where you know you can always make your kick faster you can make it move in a straighter line you can snap and turn your body more to develop or deliver more power in a strike right and when someone gets to let's say a first degree black belt stage and they know all these pretty kicks they you know they're pretty confident in sparring when they get exposed to someone who's significantly better than them, they're like, oh, I didn't know that was that much more to learn until that person just showed me. And then they see the difference in where they can get to. And this is where it really comes in handy to have somebody who has either attained that level of skill or someone who can show you that, hey, you're still not at that full mastery level. You, you've only just dipped your toe in the pool of skill that's required to get yourself to that point. And in any martial arts, there's an endless training your whole life. And it's a way of living where, you know, you, you get to a certain place, you learn that skill, and then you're constantly refining. You're not only going back and refining the basics, you're working on your mental aspect, your emotional control, you're working on your own self-awareness. You're learning new skills. You're working on your speed, your accuracy, your reflex. And it's this constant refinement tunnel that brings you to a sharp point. And you're constantly sharpening that point to be finer and finer. And the sharper the point, the more effective it is at doing these specific skills. But a lot of people, they'll get to that really good point where a lot of martial artists get. There's a lot of black belts out there especially in Taekwondo, with nowadays a lot of schools are just hand out a belt. And I, I think I must have talked about this a little bit, where some schools will hold testings just as a way to make money. They'll, you know, hold a test. They'll, they have each student break a board or two. They put a belt around their waist and they make, you know, 50, 60, 100 bucks per test per student. 
And it's just a way to bring in income where, you know, the old school philosophy and through the school that, you know, I studied under and the schools that I've ran, you know, we make people earn their belts. You have got to show us that you're earning that belt even before we decide to test you. So in class every single day, I'm, I'm watching everybody. I'm seeing how they're progressing. I'm saying, oh, you know, he's maybe got, you know, work on this roundhouse kick a little bit more and then they'll be ready for the yellow belt or their sidekick needs to be refined a little bit more and then they'll be ready for that orange belt. But until I see a student demonstrate that level of skill in class, they are not ready to get to that belt. And I essentially see belt tests as just a ceremony in, you know, commemorating the achievement that you've already worked hard enough to get there. I don't see it as like a, oh, you know, you have to show us here that you've earned it. To me, the test is just a kind of a ceremony that you get to show all of your friends and family, all the stuff that you've been learning and know how to do. And, and that's a, a big ideological difference in what we call McDojangs versus a real Taekwondo school or karate school or anything like that is, you know, are they testing you properly? Are you, they making you earn your belt? And if they're not, I'd highly recommend you leave that school and go find another one. And th that's the biggest thing is how fast are people moving through belts? Because nobody should be moving through belts really crazy fast. You know, do they have 20 belts in their curriculum? Right? Do they have like four different yellow belts, four different green belts that, that yeah. like one wants to stripe in it and all this stuff? And that's not the yeah. traditional way of thinking. I don't think it's the best way to go about it. Like here, the way we do it, we use the traditional belt system. It goes white, yellow, orange, green, blue, purple, red, brown, recommended black belt, and then black belt. Where the recommended black belt, you're essentially getting ready for your black belt. And then you get your black belt. And then we start the degrees. There are nine degrees total. Now, there is an honorary 10th degree that you can only get after you're dead. And once you attain <laughs> you don't degree, want that. you're considered yeah. a master. Once you attain the 7th degree. Yeah, right. <laughs> we don't want to get the 10th degree. <laughs> once you get to 7th degree, you're considered a grandmaster. And once you get to ninth degree, you're the highest grandmaster in your, your art it is very hard to get to a grand master level it takes a lot of lifelong learning and continuous development when you get to fourth degree in taekwondo we consider that essentially the end of you learning the the moves and the basic skills it then gets into teaching and through teaching you learn more you learn deeper about each skill. You start having to break down how you're doing each technique to then show other people. And that allows you to see the moves differently. So usually we have anybody who's in black belt at a full-on school having to start assist teaching class because it really does help in the development of that person. But yeah. the belts should just be essentially, I think we talked about this just you then that belt telling you where that student should be. And I think we mentioned this on the last episode that we, we talked with that like it, it doesn't necessarily mean that the best it just means, Hey, they should know this. Yeah. If that makes sense. That's it's really fascinating too. Cause like I see the same thing in my life, right? Run a, we run a podcasting agency. So called push button podcasts. So that's what we run this your your podcast through. And on the mastery stage, I have to teach all the time, like three, four, five times a day. 
on the couple of things that are really important for podcasting. And one of the things that I've noticed is the more that I teach, the more that I actually get up and have to explain the same basic thing over and over again, the better I get at not only doing it myself, but also at explaining it to the next group of people. And so it helps me to understand the things that are actually important, the things that actually like move the needle for people in their understanding. And I know like I, I see that in you in our training classes as like I ask questions or my son asks questions. You're in that mastery stage where you're teaching, right? You're teaching someone else and you can see like when I ask a question, like I know this regularly, I, I regularly think like, I feel like this is going to be a dumb question. But, you know, for someone who's going through and learning these things, I'll, I'll ask a question. <laughs> you have to think to yourself, be like, oh, yeah, I do actually have a whole process for that. Um, and then you have to like backtrack in your own head and work through your process so you can learn to teach it. And so it's not just like when you get to the mastery stage where you're at, right? You're like, I think you said fourth degree, right? Fourth degree black belt that you are learning probably as much from teaching us as we are learning from you while you're teaching us, right? So the journey doesn't stop just because you are at the mastery I would teaching. Say so. Yeah, exactly. It always keeps going. And this, the second you stop growing, like you, you can maybe stay stagnant, right? You can keep that that flat line, which is still really hard to do. But usually you start declining, right? The, the technique starts to wane the less you use it. And it requires constant practice and utilization. It's like if you let a car with gas sit for a while, like the gas might go bad. And the next time you go to start it, there might be a whole bunch of issues. And yeah. that happens essentially with our bodies, right? You don't use a specific muscle or a ligament for a while and you go to throw a kick, you might hurt something. Your body may not remember exactly that perfect way to throw that kick. And it's been a while. So it takes a little bit for that mind and body connection, the mind-muscle connection to reestablish if you haven't been exercising that. And this comes down to changes in the brain, where the more we train, the more we strengthen specific neural pathways and strengthen them. So this includes focus, this includes perception, situational awareness, establishing a sense of calm. All those can start to decrease as you lessen training, and that also has different effects throughout our life. And this is why we call it a lifestyle because you're changing the way you live, not only inside the dojang, but outside of it as well. We're learning to be more mindful in the way that we speak to other people, in the way we speak to ourselves, and in the way we go about all these different tasks because we know at the end of the day, it affects how we're thinking and it affects how we're performing in every different situation. And this is a good transition into how cross training and I guess training like meditation, breath work, calisthenics, strength training, and stretching really plays a role in your development in martial arts. Where, yeah. you know, I've, I've had a few of my past yeah. students come up to me and, you know, explain to me that, you know, in so a few years ago, it was right before the pandemic, everything closed down and I actually stopped teaching at the school that I was teaching at. And I opened up my school, Ferro Academy, in September of 2020 to start teaching in person outside in like a safe environment. And, you know, I essentially got new students. All my old students stayed at the old school. It was closed down throughout for almost a year. And they started, you know, ramping up training again. And since then, I've been traveling, so I haven't been able to teach in person. We train online. But a lot of the students that I used to teach in person, they've come up to me and they've, they've said like, hey, you know, 
this teacher is not doing this, we don't exercise much anymore, or they've gone to a different school and they now experience a different way of teaching. They say, hey, we're not doing this, and I feel these different impacts. Like some martial arts schools, they won't do physical exercise, which I'm completely against. Like you, you need to do physical exercise to stay fit so you can properly defend yourself in a situation. No, they'll come to me like, yeah, we just do kicks and, and forms. We don't do any push-ups, no squats, no running. I'm like, okay. This I, I I wasn't aware that some schools are just they're just trying to learn technique, and I don't necessarily agree with that. You know, and this can be applied to any discipline where you know you go to to learn any skill, and they're missing different aspects that are going to have this compounding effect on the direct training of that skill. Yeah, yeah, it's the same thing. And I feel like this um, might have impacted your personal decision. Yeah, it it's it runs over in a lot of in a lot of yeah. worlds where when I'm looking to get good at anything, I'm always looking at what are the skills that are analogous to it that you should also get good at. So if you're looking to get good at writing, you also want to look good at, get good at getting speaking and you want to look, get good at learning how to do research. And you want to learn to get good at doing storytelling, right? There's all sorts of aspects that go into that. And so you cross train in all those different things so you can sit down and actually do the writing. And what I've noticed in the in working with you at Fair Academy is that you, we do train the techniques and like the techniques are an important part of our stuff, but you also are training us in so many other aspects of it, so, right? We're doing the cross training in the breath work and in the meditation and in the, the yoga and the stretching and the, I'm gonna forget the other one, the calisthenics is the word. And all of those things are having a big impact on everything from like my posture to how I breathe to all these, like they, they all tie into the little aspects that you're learning and they make your techniques better. They make your ability to understand the techniques better. And the other thing that it yeah. does is you're building the skill of mastery, right? Like, because that's what this episode is about, is like that timeline of mastery is like, that's, yes. it's a skill set to learn how to master a skill. And you're using Taekwondo is like your skeleton framework that like, hey, this is the thing we're going to master. And what does it take to master something? Well, it takes the time. You have to go through this novice, you know, mm -hmm. advanced expert, you know, master sort of like timeline but you also have to master like all the little branching skills that come off of it in order to actually truly be a master. So you're actually teaching the skill of mastery. So you can take that and then learn other skills. And I know I've seen some of your work in other areas, right? You're also a fire spinner and you do incredible glass work. And right, I would imagine you probably see the same kind of like skill sets that you have to build in those other areas and it follows the same sort of journey. Absolutely. And, you know, the more we do that cross-training, it helps progress that main focus. And like you're saying, we're learning how to learn. And once you, once you understand that, oh, I can apply this to all these other things, it'll compound and accelerate your rate of improvement. Essentially reducing the length of time it's going to take you to master a specific technique or to master an art in general. So the further along that you get, the better you get at getting better. And that essentially just compounds and you become this whole new creature, essentially. Yeah, it, it's an and, upward spiral of positivity. You know, if you, this this is probably one of the reasons why. Yes, exactly. And th this is maybe one of the reasons why we make it take so long at the black belt stage and at the higher belt levels where, you know, I think you, you'll go from a belt like white, yellow, and orange is maybe two to four months 
of time in between those belts normally. I sometimes make people take longer just to develop a more concrete foundation. To me, that's one of the most important stages is white, yellow, and orange belt. But, you know, once you get to, let's say, brown belt, it takes you two years to get your black belt, usually, unless you're moving really fast. It takes you a year at recommended black belt to get to the next belt. And we do this because the level of refinement, if you don't understand how to apply that mastery skill is so big because you, you've learned this technique, right? And you've learned it in a specific way and you've been doing it for so long. And now we're saying, hey, we want you to change how you move your knee at this specific moment. And then at this specific moment, we want you to extend your hips. And you're like, what? Yeah. But I've been doing it this way. And like, yeah, now we want you to make it better and it's gonna be harder. And it's going to be more challenging. It's going to be faster, more powerful. And you're like, oh, okay, well, I'll, I'll do that even though it's a lot harder. And that, that's really what we're getting to at those different stages is we're taking what used to take all of your brain just to do the technique. And now we're saying, hey, you can now add this more to it and you can make it better. Yeah. And there's, there's very there's few people who at a novice level can perform. Yes. And like the, the capability gap exactly. comes from things exactly. like, I know, like right now, my son and I are struggling. Well, not struggling. We're just in that novice stage of like, like we can't do like the full splits yet in either of the, the things which restricts our hip movement. Right. So like some of those things that you're talking about in the more advanced levels, like our body isn't even capable of getting into the position to add those yet. <laughs> right. And so we, we have to go through the work of building the, those novice and intermediate skills and the body that's capable of doing them before we can get to the next stage and actually get into those more advanced techniques and the more advanced like refinements. Cause like I, I can't get my hips fully sideways yet. Right. And it won't, I won't be able to do that until I can get the, the full splits, which we're working on. And you've mentioned it's probably going to take a year or two, but like some of those more advanced things that you're talking about, like I, I just physically can't do yet. Yeah. And in, in the progress that you've made from when, you know, you started training is very significant, but you know, it, it, you're right. It takes a while and we want to do it slowly so that we don't injure specific ligaments and connective tissue in the body. And that also comes back to, you know, the physical transformation and the mental transformation that you undergo through this, you know, novice to expert stage is your body has to get used to and strong enough to be able to do some of these techniques where, you know, not a lot of people can do a pistol squat, which is a one-legged squat. Not a lot of people can do a one-handed push-up. And we're working towards these things. And they're, you know, feats of strength, let's say, for example, in these, but they have direct correlation to how you use, you know, your body control. Can you, you know, do a sweeping kick? That essentially requires you to do a pistol squat. Do you have the flexibility to do the split so you can do a head level kick, right? That yeah. all has different effects and it allows you to perform these techniques differently. So that, yeah. that's extremely like, important. And the more you I, train, and now the where more I capable you're going to be. And it trains your body to allow you to do that. Yeah, where I see the same thing, like with working on like our roundhouse kick and the axe kick, which are like your base level kicks. And I know like one of our goals is to be able to get those kicks both to head level. And I know that like the, neither my son or I are getting our kicks to head level yet. And it's because we don't have the, the hamstring flexibility to get up there. And it's like, like we can't actually move on to the next level kicks until we build those baseline things. And like, it's cool to see the progress as you're going through, 
and to see like what you know what skills you have now and how like what you're working on translates into more advanced skills and then it's also interesting to see how like as we're building all of this foundational skill sets particularly like one of the reasons why i'm excited about doing martial arts and the calisthenics is like all of these skills and the body that comes along with them translates into almost anything else we want to do right it, it gives us a yeah like well to, exactly. to just use the term from your show an, an unlimited self right the unlimited you right like that my body is not the thing that is telling me what i can or can't do today exactly um right? that's and that's such a cool a cool progress exactly. to see happening in my own life yeah and you know for to kind of play into what, what you're saying here like i started fire spinning maybe two years ago now and i've only been really dancing for maybe two years and my progress through that has been significantly higher had i not done martial arts because it's given me uh you know more awareness of my body and how i move more control over it and i can take that and translate it into these different subjects like i i know for certain that my bow training that's essentially the staff training we call it a bow you know that has played you know unsurmountable influence in using the fire staff you know now you can't do specific techniques like i'm not able to touch myself at the ends of it like i do when i tuck it for a weapon and the the fire staff you flow more but there's a lot of the movements and there's a lot of essentially the the, the focus and the way i'm moving my hand that correlates directly to using that and you know that that took like a mental and physical transformation in applying it differently and taking that mastery and applying it to something else as well. Yeah. And I've noticed, I noticed the same thing with my son, right? So my son actually has been fire spinning for a long time. He's been fire spinning for almost four years now. And so he came to martial arts with that skill set. And I see him picking up skills in martial arts pretty quickly, which is cool to see. But he's also, he picks up a lot of things really fast. And it's interesting. So for someone who's his age, right, in that young teenage level, where like if you learn how to master a skill like early in your life, he just picks up and masters skills so much faster. Like I have to put in a lot more effort to master something than he does from like a, a time. Right. I think the effort is probably both is, is similar, but like he just gets there faster because he's younger <laughs> and his brain more pliable. And he can just pick up skills really fast. And like just in the last year, he's picked up, he started training bow staff with you. He's gotten really good with it. He's probably going to start um, fire spinning that yeah. this year. And he's learning the rope dart. And he's had that for like three days. And he's already looks as good as some of the people I've seen performing with it. And he's just picking up skills really quickly. And so like to that mastery and physical transformation thing, the earlier in your life you can learn to build this mastery timeline, right? And actually like, like the more skill you have. Right. And the, the more you can apply it in your life. And I think that's really cool. Absolutely. Absolutely. At Fair Academy, we believe every person has unlimited potential waiting to be unleashed. Join our academy and discover your inner power through disciplines like Taekwondo, Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, Muay Thai, martial arts weapons, and more. Our experienced instructors empower you with the skills, strength, and wisdom to become an unstoppable warrior. Train in a focused, inclusive environment where you'll progress quickly. Learn meditation, nutrition, and breathing techniques to develop a balanced body, mind, and spirit. Uncover your true potential and prepare for life's challenges at Farah Academy. Start your journey. Visit farahacademy.com today.
And, you know, the, the, we're also learning, you know, the cultural and historical aspects of these arts. So through learning Taekwondo, we're learning essentially Korean culture, where we often bow as a greeting and as a way of showing respect. We're learning how to count in a different language. We're learning different commands in a different language. And this goes back to keeping the tradition of the art, which like, let's say you go to like a UFC gym and you're learning straight MMA. You're gonna be learning different striking formats, maybe Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu or wrestling on the ground. And, but you're not really touching the deeper aspects of these individual arts, you know, their meaning, their cultural representation. And this gives different perspective into, you know, not only how the art got to where it is, the meaning of it, but it, it also carries with it the specific, like, I guess, power, and in, in, in that's the best way I can put it, where uh, it, it creates a safe space. You know, you step into a dojang or a training space, and you know that you're being taken care of, that you're, you know, you're there to grow and to learn. And it's a very different mindset because of this historical and cultural respect to the art that you start to learn as you, you know, you start to master these things. And then you start to understand, oh, hey, this is why I bow. Oh, this is why we do this. Because it, it brings about a different environment in training. And I think a lot of people don't necessarily connect the dots and how important that is. And I know a lot of Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu gyms really do a good job of this in creating a safe atmosphere. Let's say, for example, you're training somewhere and here comes this guy who thinks he's better than everybody, who's trying to like beat everybody and tap everybody out. That's not going to be a good environment to be in where you're not going to feel safe. You're going to you're going to go roll with that person. And next thing you know, they got you in an arm bar and they might overextend and you may break or hurt your arm. So, you know, the way we do it in having that respect for the tradition, the culture and learning the those traditional roots really helps us understand the core of the martial arts, which we're learning you know, self-control, we're learning perseverance and respect for not only ourselves, but the people around us as well. And yeah. I think that's really understated in a lot of different schools and yeah. in martial arts journey. I really love the, the thought process too of really balancing it. tradition and innovation. And I, this is something I talk about a lot in our podcast on, you know, on, on, we have a podcast called The Hero Show. And we talk about this, this idea of balancing tradition versus innovation. And it's super important. I think a lot of people miss it. And you see this in politics. People argue about this all the time. People argue about, you know, conservatism versus progressivism. And that's the same argument, tradition versus innovation. And you realize that, like, innovation and the future and, like, actually getting good at things and progressing things forward has to be seated in the traditions of our past, right? Because we didn't get to where we are on accident, right? Right. And we haven't gotten to, you know, like, you know, particularly like exactly. martial arts as the example like it didn't just happen yesterday. There's thousands of years of history here on why we're holding our hands this way and why we're bowing the way that we are and why we're doing like all the little things. There's reasons for those things to exist. And, you know, you might find in the, pro the process of innovation, right? You know, just to use a, uh, an example everyone is familiar with, you know, in the United States, the, you know, we had this declaration of independence that said all men are created equal. And then we still had slavery. Right. And so at some point we were like the tradition, you know, the tradition of slavery conflicted with the innovation of all men are created equal. So we eventually fought a war over that and we changed it. 
right? We changed the, uh, that, that story. And so you have to do that balance. Sometimes there's things in tradition that you'll have to remove, you know, for the sake of innovation to make something better. But there is so much to our history and right, like we, we've survived on this planet for thousands of years. So, you know, there's benefits to the tradition and there's yeah. benefits to the things that we do. And so it makes sense to learn those stories and to understand them and to see where, like what we were talking about before, where it's okay to break the traditional rules to make something better and where the traditional rules shouldn't be broken, right? <laughs> because because we've already gone down that road and realized Absolutely. that those are, all, those are all terrible. And so you have to have both. And I think that's a, it's a really important, <laughs> useful distinction. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, some of those traditional values get lost in a lot of schools, either because, you know, they haven't been taught that and then they're not teaching it, which is a problem, right? Or they just don't think it's important. And the traditional values give that kind of scaffolding, not only for how you teach, how you treat each other, but meaning behind what you're doing. Like a, Back in, let's say, you know, BC era, BCE, you would have martial artists venturing, walking as nomads, and they would share martial arts with each other through forms. So it's a series of techniques put together that you can share with people and you essentially learn some of their style. This is why we do forms. It breaks down different ways of using these techniques and different ways to apply them and then you perform your form and then someone else can learn those techniques through just literally looking at your form. And that'll be called uh, pomse in Korean or katas for karate and forgot what the Kung Fu iteration of it is. So but those these forms allow us to share art. really complex <laughs> techniques. Absolutely, yeah. And you know, you can have a Kung Fu person share their form with me and I can share my Taekwondo form with them and we'll both learn something and we'll see very similar moves. Like you have the flying sidekick in almost all of these Eastern Asia arts from Japan to China to Korea, you have the flying sidekick, but they're called different things and they're done slightly different, but it's essentially the same move. And you know, you'll go about it in a different way and this could be applied in different situations like if maybe you don't have as much space to do your kick maybe you want to you know do it while going backwards or you have to cover a longer range these essentially like cultural and traditional ways of doing things can teach us essentially the history of the move and then allow us to further innovate and a lot of the current innovations that is going on in taekwondo are essentially coming from the higher output that we can achieve through, you know, increasing our flexibility, our mobility, and our strength. So the science of exercise has really progressed over the last, I want to say, like 20, 30 years in, you know, the testing of what different exercises work and how to do them to make yourself, you know, see the benefits of it better. For example, stretching. Now, traditionally, a lot of schools would have a longer stretching session in the beginning, and then they would go into their kicks and then do some exercises somewhere in there, and then you finish the class off with a very light stretching, if any at all. And a lot of studies will show that, you know, dynamic stretching, warming up is beneficial in the beginning, and then you go into 
your core training and then you stretch at the end where your muscles are already loose and that allows you to get a deeper stretch helping lengthen and further your growth and flexibility and that's a relatively new innovation that we're starting to incorporate in our class and these innovations the more that we learn you know through the science of living and you know of training and the science of martial arts we're able to apply that and teach better to the next generation and you're seeing a lot of a lot more progressive fighters essentially a lot more disciplined martial artists in many respects because we're able to teach them these complex moves and these these fundamental ways of thinking at a younger age rather than it being like oh you're just learning a kick and a punch now let's teach you everything and i'm seeing some very very promising kids who you know they're 14 15 already a second or third degree black belt my friend master ian i think got his fourth degree when he was under 18 which is amazing and you know they're really pushing the limits of like what you can do because they're starting yeah. to train at a young age they're being exposed to different things and they're helping innovate the the art yeah it's it's really interesting i i have this concept that i like to tell people or teach people about and it's the, the art of potential right and we have our known limits, right? What we actually know is one box that we all live in, right? Those the, is, we can see the edges of that box because we're inside of it, right? And like the biggest example of that is like the, uh, you know, the four minute mile. Everyone knew before the 1960s that you couldn't run faster than a four minute mile. But outside of that box is what, where the actual human potential really is. It's like our known potential and then our real potential. And our real potential is some other box that we can't see the edges of. And one of the things that's been really fascinating to watch over the last 20 years is we are seeing in every category of you know human experience that we are pushing the edges of what we know our capabilities are and we're exploring and expanding our potential and so you know now if you don't run a four minute mile you're not even competitive right and and so we're seeing that happen in just like every sort of category and so <laughs> bringing it back to martial arts you're seeing a lot of those same yeah. things like how does what we're learning about nutrition impact what we're capable of doing in and outside of the dojang with martial arts what about what we're learning about stretching and muscle development and how it's built and how the brain actually builds you know pathways for repeating motion like you know some of those things like we actually understand them now and have the science behind it where we didn't before and so we're able to push the edges of what our actual potential is capable of and so you know that's where like because we're in yeah. this really advanced stage of being able to innovate it's really important to keep okay those traditions as well right and that's where it's like we could really blind ourselves to the traditions of what we already know if you're not careful about it. And so anyways, that's where one of the things I've been really enjoying about your class and your teaching style here at Fair Academy is that you do teach both of those things, but you have like, there's no fear of the innovation and there's no fear of the tradition. You can use both of those things and really create a holistic person, right? And unlimited you. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. And here's kind of one of the pitfalls of the innovation that we've seen in Taekwondo, especially over the last, I want to say, 20 years. When Taekwondo got added to the Olympics, it really changed the sport because when they added it to the Olympics, they, we don't score it like boxing. It's not, oh, you can knock somebody out. And it, it's called point sparring. You get a specific point for different hits. So you get one point for a punch to the body normally two points for a kick to the body normally, and then three to five points, depending on what tournament you're at, for a kick to the head. 
And I think they give more points for like a turning kick or a jumping kick to the head, depending on your tournament. And what this does is it changes the way you train. And this also goes for Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. Point rolling, that you get a point for throwing somebody down. You get a point for mounting them and taking their position over. It changes the way you think about rolling and about self-defense. And I don't think this is necessarily a good evolution in either discipline or in any discipline where you're prizing making a point over self-defense. Because the people who train those specific ways, they're gonna be they're gonna be developing bad habits in the self-defense respect. For example, if you watch Taekwondo Olympics, their hands are down here. You can't even see my hands. They should be up here guarding the face, ready yeah. to block the head. Oftentimes their hands are down. They're not even afraid of that head level kick. And you know, if somebody does get in close, their head is completely open. They'll get knocked out by somebody who's actually practicing the self-defense aspect of the art. Because what, what ends up happening with the point sparring is you use a lot of front leg kicks, which are really fast, but they usually don't have a lot of power. And you can walk through. I, I would take a front leg kick to get inside of them to then give a more powerful strike if I knew that's the situation I was in, right? So that compromises your self-defense aspect of your training where you're putting yourself in actually more danger by training these this way than you would if you were training in a traditional sense like if you look at taekwondo in i want to say the 60s or 70s there's a lot of good videos out there in different trainings especially if you're on social media a lot that they, they practice speed power and really hard delivery like you'll see somebody going off on a bag it looks like they're about to like destroy the world versus a lot of these new style, they're just flickering their, their front foot. And you're like, what is this? Like, you, you may touch the person, but you're not actually delivering an impact. It's not actually functional. So we have to be careful in our innovation that, like you're saying, we, we keep an eye on the tradition of it. Why is this art a thing? Why do we do it this way? And is the new way better? And if it's not, why? Right. And one of from a personal story, all of the schools that we trained with in Maryland, Taekwondo, we would have essentially a local tournament and none of our schools agreed that the new point sparring method of the Olympics is we, we just don't like it. We're all against it because of the way you have to train. And we came up with the new method of essentially scoring sparring, which is closer to boxing. You know, are they effectively using the martial arts for self-defense? Are they applying their high-level moves effectively? Can they block? Are they reacting? And it's not just, oh, am I hitting you in the head? Am I doing a head-level kick? Am I kicking you in the body? And then I'm scoring a point down. And we're not doing that because what we've seen is when you score like that, you prize specific things that shouldn't be allowed right in a self-defense aspect like if you throw a front level kick i'm going to go through and and back kick you in the chest and then you're going to be down on the ground with a broken rib right so can they block can they move can they use their art in a self-defense way that you can actively see and what we saw is a lot of i would say 90 percent of the kids we saw sparring didn't block at all like they just got hit and they took it and then I got up there to spar and like, I'm blocking everything. This is what I'm used to. I'm doing my scissor blocks. You throw a head level kick, I'm blocking up here. And I won my match mostly because of how I was utilizing my self-defense techniques. 
And, you know, I did throw a hook kick and I got this guy on the head and I got, you know, that, that was a display of using my higher level techniques. But like the person who I was sparring against, they were using a lot of the front level kicks. He would come in over my head and try to land a, a kick on my head. And it's like, okay, you may touch my head, but it's, it's not going to hurt. And when he did that, I, I trained to punch to the head. I threw a reactive punch towards it. I pull it back so I didn't hit him because it was a sparring situation, but his head was open. You know, if this is a street fight, you're going to get knocked out and not be on the ground. So, you know, that's where being careful of how we're training can have a direct impact on your performance and your self-defense. So I think that's you know, a, there's some innovations that are amazing that, you know, really further the art. That's really fascinating. What you're talking about is you're talking about incentive structures, right? The, so the innovation of incentive structures. And we talk a lot um, in, you know, in the business world about how incentivizing the action that you want to take. And so in point sparring, right, you've incentivized a specific aspect and they've incentivized something and they didn't. That's why the tradition part is so important, because innovating requires that you try something, see how it works against the tradition. Right. Is it improving this or is it making it worse? And so what you're saying is like they've got this innovation point sparring and yes. compared to the tradition, it's it is it's failing. So now you come back to the tradition and you try something else, right? That's what innovation is about. It's about experimenting and failing and experimenting and yes. failing to get something that's good. And the stuff that's good is the stuff that survives, right? It's the stuff that gets added to tradition, right? And so that's where you have yeah. to have balance yeah. of tradition and innovation. So you're saying, hey, this point scoring method is not a good innovation because it gives bad results. Let's rethink about how we do this, right? And so your schools in Maryland were talking about how to develop a different incentive structure in order to score it and turn it into a, you know, into a sport that people want to watch and be judged on, right? So can you have both? Can we still score this and still keep all of the, uh, the yes. traditional aspects? And so that might be the kind of thing that might get experimented with over the next couple of decades until you get something that actually ends up being the tradition, you know, get added to the tradition of martial arts. And that's why you really have to have both of those pieces of balancing the tradition with the innovation. Because without the tradition, then you just end up doing, you know, to your point, dumb things, or in this case, dangerous things, because, you know, you're the yeah. original purpose of a martial art is for self-defense. Exactly, exactly. And over the recent years, especially with the technological developments, they have test guards that now measure how hard a strike is. So you, you can actually, they have a health bar. It's almost like a video game. There's two health bars. And the harder you hit somebody, the more health it takes away from, you know, their bar. And essentially, the, the more damage you cause, the, the more their health bar reduces. And one of the reasons that the Taekwondo is practiced the way that it is today, where only black belts are allowed to kick to the head and we don't allow punching to the head is because of the potential damage that it can do. Like, I've gotten and I've given concussions while training sparring. It is, it's a thing that happens. And this is where control is really important to learn. And it's probably one of the reasons why Taekwondo has evolved the way it has today is because they're trying to keep the athletes, the martial artists safe in the training. Now, again, like you're saying, you know, there, there's some negative aspects to it where you're learning these bad habits. And we're slowly finding out, oh, hey, maybe not a point system. Maybe we put a really nice chest guard that measures the you know the intensity of the impact and maybe we do a better headgear for the head so when you do receive headshots you aren't you know getting a concussion because 
you, you can generate so much more power with your legs. And if you get hit in the head with even medium intensity kick, you're probably going to get a concussion. And, you know, I've had students get concussions. I've gotten concussions. It's not a fun thing to experience. It's not good for your brain to be, you know, jostled around. And there's been a lot of improvements in headgear. And I think I'm personally excited to see the direction that the sport's going to go once we remove this whole point sparring thing from the system and we really get back to, hey, yeah. who's striking more and who's striking harder and more effectively. And yeah. to your point earlier, it's a self-defense thing, right? So if you're sparring, you shouldn't get hit in the head, right? You should be blocking those things. Your hands should be up. If you're getting hit in the head, you're doing something yes. wrong. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. Yeah, and you know, if you're not learning to defend yourself, what are you learning? You know, it's the whole point of martial arts where we're mastering our bodies, our minds, and we're instilling internal peace so that we can spread it. We're learning de-escalate situations by, you know, not getting ourselves all riled up and letting, you know, somebody who's calling us stupid get to us. And we're able to walk away from situations. And this is where, like, you're saying the traditional values and the traditional teachings really come in handy because we're learning these things that some schools, in my opinion, honestly, just don't even teach. And they don't find it important because they don't think people want to learn these things. And it's not about what they want to learn. It's what they need to learn. Like people need to learn how to control their minds so that way they can control their actions. A lot of in today's culture, we want to control other people and tell everybody else what to do. But we forget to tell ourselves, you know, I'm the boss of me. I can only really tell myself what I'm going to do what I'm going to say, how I'm going to act. And once we realize that, that we can only ask or suggest people what they're going to do, that we all need to turn that light within and control ourselves and master ourselves, then there's going to be a whole new wave of evolution throughout society, in my opinion. And that's where I think, you know, implementing Taekwondo or at least martial arts in general, any kind of martial arts, whether you learn Kung Fu, Karate, Taekwondo, I always come back to those, Muay Thai, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, that it can create such a strong foundation for child development. And, you know, you see this in China, you see this in Korea, where majority of the kids there are, they, they have to either learn Taekwondo or they have to learn something else so they can learn how to learn, they can learn how to grow, and you get better, more effective people this way. And, you know, I, I think it's really undervalued in teaching yeah, I I have a, a thought on martial that. Arts. Like it's, we've yeah. been talking about like the pace of innovation just in our world at large, right? The amount of things that have happened just in the last several years with, you know, 5G internet, 100xing our speed capabilities and like the innovations that are happening in batteries and the innovations that are happening in learning and in science and in processing power. All these things are like our world is moving really fast, like really fast. And if we're going to be able to keep up with the pace yeah. of innovation, we have to master the skill of learning, right? We have to master this skill of mastery so that we can just as human beings keep up with the pace of the way our world is moving. And like, it's one of the things that like, I've really been paying a lot of attention to with raising our kids is getting them into things like martial arts. And because it is, it's expressly a tradition that is thousands of years old that is geared towards teaching human beings how to master themselves and part of mastering yourself is like mastering the art of learning and that's what, what they're built they're built on those foundations and you know 
kids who don't learn how to do this stuff, and even adults who learn how to do this stuff, right, learn how to master something like martial arts allows you to master all those other skills. We talked about that already. And it's not going to be a thing that's optional 15 years from now. It's going to be the kind of thing that like either you're learning to master these things and learning to master yourself, or you're not going to be able to keep up. You won't be competitive in any marketplace. I, I agree with that. Absolutely. And yeah. just as a kind of last line over me. So as a last little note to kind of everybody, anyone who's out there looking to get into martial arts, make sure not only first you pick a discipline that you feel you connect with, but go to the school and see if you can do a free trial class. If they don't offer a free trial class and they have a four class program, try that out before you commit to, you know, lifelong training at that school. And you want to see, you know, are they making you do physical activity? Are they making you do jumping jacks, push-ups, squats? Are they having you stretch for an extended period of time? Are they going over a technique slowly, allowing you to refine it, giving you good feedback? And are they teaching you, you know, core values of the discipline? Or are they just getting up there and the class is kind of boring? They just show you a technique and then, the and then you go home. You know, when you're looking for a good martial arts school, try it out. Make sure it's done well. Make sure you're getting all of these different aspects of it. And if you're not, go find a different teacher because you're going to be wasting your time. And the schools that are worth it, when you take a class, you know. And now don't go to the, don't go to the schools who, you know, they say like, oh, I'm going to keep you away with my chi. And they can like throw you down with one hand and all this stuff. Don't go there. You're going to end up getting hurt or learning something that's going to put you in a really hard situation. You know which ones are the good martial arts schools by how they teach. And if you can't observe a class, take a class. If you can't take a class, find somewhere else. Because usually the places who can definitely teach the right way, they're going to have some kind of way that you can try out the program. Because they're not only, you're not only testing them out, they're also testing you out to see if you fit with their school. And that, that, that has a big effect in it where, you know, I'm not going to let someone join my school who's going to be trying to be UFC champion and coming in and trying to beat everybody. That's not the environment we're creating at our school. So find a school that fits for you. Try it out. And if you can't find one, and if there's not one available, you know, look around a wider area. And you can also look up our schools, fairacademy.com slash you. And it gives you information on our training. We do online training. And eventually we'll have in-person training as well. And we go into each one of these topics very deeply. And we spend a lot of time going into them so that you don't miss something that's important that may be critical for your self-development. Yeah, I have one final question. I feel question. like that pretty much covers it. Is there anything else you'd yeah. like to say? Yeah, just one more question. And it's yeah. the way that we met, you were actually teaching at a festival, right? And I actually got to like sample a class, so to speak. And yeah. I'm just curious, is that something that just you do? Or is that something that other schools do too? Or is where like the teachers might actually be out teaching at either local festivals or local things like that, that, they, that, you know, if someone's looking for a martial arts teacher, one of the reasons we connected was because you were out actually teaching free classes. And like, if that is a thing that happens regularly, how do people find things yeah. like yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, I've done a lot of, let's say, like elementary and middle schools. They'll have like a career day. Some martial arts schools will go there. They'll take some of their students and they'll do a demonstration. County fairs, I've seen different martial arts schools go there. 
I personally like to go to more intimate events for those kind of things, either music, art festivals, or specific, more holistic festivals. I've done one at Renaissance Fair style event, and it's usually in the events calendar if they're going to have any kind of display like that. Sometimes they don't even put that they're going to have some kind of martial arts display on there, but I definitely know that more schools and other people do it as well. I only like to do it if it's calling and if it's the right environment. I don't necessarily like to go to extremely large events and do this because the attention is, you're kind of looking everywhere. It's hard to get people, you know, to follow a 30 minute to one hour training if there's a mass amount of people there. So it depends on the event for me personally. Yeah. So one one more question for you before we finish this off, and it's just, you know, in the line of finding someone that you want to do, right? Because right? we talked about this, like you're going to commit, right? Five, 10 years of your life to this mastery journey. So you want to yeah. find a trainer that you really connect with. And so, you know, there's probably going to be a difference if you're looking for your child who wants to start this, or if you're looking for yourself as an adult. And I just want to see if you can speak a couple of minutes on what you might be looking for if you were looking Absolutely. for something for your child or if you're looking for something to develop yourself as an adult. Um, like what kind of things might you be considering there if you're looking for a, um, a master to train yeah. with? Yeah, absolutely. Like for child development is very different than adult teaching. And I do both, but they're very different. Now, you can have a school that does both. You can have a teacher who does both. Uh, they're, they're hard to find, in my opinion, because uh, a lot of schools that teach children, they're either too loose, they don't have enough discipline, or they're too disciplined and they don't allow the kids for creative development. There's a good fine middle ground, especially for kids, where at a young age, they have to learn a specific style of discipline. So, you know, uh, are the kids talking back to the students or to the teacher? That's a big thing. If they're doing that openly in that teaching environment, it's probably not the right environment to put your kid in. Are they being patient in teaching the kids the techniques? You know, are they explaining things in different ways? Because not every kid's going to understand the same thing explained one way. You know, are they taking, do they have assistant instructors that they're able to go around and help, you know, some like a, a class of 30 students, I usually have an assistant or two that can go around and help fix different things as I'm teaching and leading the class. And especially for the kids class, you know, is everyone paying attention? A lot of martial arts schools, unfortunately, can get boring because of the way that it's being taught. And you'll start to see kids up playing with their pants and all this stuff, right? So a well-led class is very organized. Everyone's chidip, yeah, chumbi, you're holding that ready stance and the teacher is often able to hold everybody's attention, 100% of the class. And if somebody falls off, they are good at seeing it and calling everybody back to attention. I think those are the most important things when the kids' class is concerned. As far as adults, you know, are you getting physical activity? Is that teacher knowledgeable? And you're only really going to be able to know that through seeing how they teach. To, And you can also look at the more advanced students, right? So if you go in there and you watch only the lower belts, like, you know, white, yellow, and orange belt, maybe come and watch a higher belt level class. You know, look at their techniques. Are they doing high level stuff? Are they being taught well? 
and you want to look at, you know, especially the physical activity parts for adults. Like, are you getting, you know, push-ups, squats? Are you doing these calisthenics to help strengthen your body during your training? Are you stretching at the end versus the beginning? Are you practicing meditation, breath work, or are you just learning martial arts? So for kids, I would look more of like the style of teaching. For the adults, I'd look at more of the content. And usually if the, the style of teaching is there for the younger kids, you're going to have a lot of that content already there. Now, of course, you want to also look at those things that I mentioned for the adults, for the kids, but the disciplinary, the attention holding for kids is especially going to be important, especially with, you know, tel telephones and all this stuff, like kids are on their devices all day. So you want to have a teacher who can hold their attention, who can speak to them with patience and calm and show them a different way to do things that they're not yelling at the kids. That's a big thing. You don't want a school who's out there and they're yelling at the kids. It's not a really healthy environment. So you want to, you know, check the environment, make sure that the teacher is knowledgeable and is treating the kids with respect, but also holding them to a higher standard. So they're being treated with respect. For example, when I do a school, all the kids have to say, yes, sir. If you don't say yes, sir, you get push-ups. That's just how it is. And that creates a sense of respect towards all of the teachers and to all of the students as well. We always bow to each other, right? As a greeting, as a way of saying goodbye, and also as a way of showing respect. And these things are there to create a healthy environment for learning for not only the students, but for teaching for the teachers. And oftentimes I find that if those elements aren't there, then the class is very kind of loose and playful and not a good learning environment. Like you'll, you'll go to some schools and half the room, the kids will be talking and playing around rather than paying attention to the lesson. That's not a good teaching environment. That's not a good learning environment. You want, you know, minimal conversation while training. And maybe everyone breaks up into a specific drill and you have one partner holding something and somebody kicking, there might be a little bit of talking, which is totally fine, but there should be full focus on that activity especially at that higher belt. The higher belts are kind of displaying this lack of behavior, not a good sign. And that takes a good teacher to be able to handle and navigate those different situations in a healthy way rather than, you know, I've caught myself doing this in the past of just like yelling and being like, you can't do this. And it doesn't go well. You know, you have to be very patient, but you also have to be strict in some ways so that you can create that healthy environment. And I, I think that's especially important for kids, that, that healthy environment. Because as adults, we, we kind of have a better understanding of like, hey, I'm not going to take this shit. I'm, I'm going to walk out on this one. You know, like you can't treat me like that. And it's a lot harder for kids to understand and know where that point is. Where that line is. So have, for adults, of course, you're going to be looking for those things. Um, yeah. I have one more question for you that I think is, is, is just right in line with this. I, I think that pretty much covers it. Yeah. Is my audio coming through? I'm not sure my audio is coming yeah. through. Okay. I said, I have one more question. And it's just yeah, when it's coming. sense to to seek out one-on-one -on -one ver training versus group training, right? Because a lot, a lot of what we talked about so far is like, you know, you're looking at a school in a class setting mm. and then like you and I are doing one-on-one -on -one training, whereas it's really one-on-two because we're doing my son and I at the same time, which is more individualized attention. And I know for me specifically, I was looking for that because I'm looking for like peak performance for my business and other things and just have benefits outside of, you know, we, we got a whole episode talking about benefits outside of martial arts. But if someone who's looking to get into martial arts, 
when would you sort of make the recommendation to look into group training versus in one-on-one training? And is it ever a smart, you know, a smarter decision to start with group training versus versus one-on-one training? Like, what are your thoughts on that? Just as a sort of like a final thing for finding your master to train with. Yeah, often this comes down to just affordability. I mean, I I think that one-on-one training is a hundred times better than a class because you're you're getting more attention. Uh, The the only thing that you're not going to get in private training as you get in a class is you're going to have more people to spar during on sparring day and you're going to have other people to kind of bounce what you're learning off of a little bit easier but uh, i've seen much further growth from private lesson students than from group lesson students and that's just because you can give them more attention if you can and can afford and have the time to do private lessons i always recommend private lessons so oftentimes it becomes a matter of just affordability because you're you have to normally pay a higher rate for the private lessons where the rate is significantly reduced for the group lessons i mean this should be pretty obvious but you know it takes you can fit a lot more kids in a room and then that person's only working one hour versus you know having it focus on you know one or two people yeah and I would say that, you know, if you're looking, if you get to a point where in your training, you want to make further development, you have the time, you have the means to do it, seek out personal, you know, one-on-one training, because it's going to take you to that other level of refinement. You're going to have a microscope on your technique, which is extremely important. Like when I'm training myself, I have a microscope on every part of my body. I know if my hip is off. I know if my foot is off and I have developed that in myself from having my senior master, my grandmaster, explain to me what I should be doing in those techniques, right? And that has developed my own personal self-awareness. So when you're in a big class, you might not be getting that. You might get the, the teacher walking around and they might come to you once or twice throughout the whole class and they might say, hey, you need to pivot this foot. You need to bring this knee forward. And that might be the only advice you get the whole class. And the rest is just you there practicing. And they might be like, hands up a few times. So you, you might get a lot more out of the private lesson than you do out of the group lesson. There's also the aspect of like kids oftentimes do better in group lessons, not only because of the attention span, but they have their peers who can help them learn how to behave and how to act during the class. Like if you have a whole bunch of people standing still, it's going to be a lot easier for them to stand still than if they're there by themselves, right? So you, you have this kind of positive reinforcement aspect from a group lesson, that approach of it. I, I prefer to teach adults or more advanced students one-on-one because of that, but I have done kids at a earlier level one-on-one. It just becomes a little bit different of an environment. So I usually suggest, you know, if you're starting off, your kids like four or five, six, all the way up to 10 years old, maybe have them go try a group lesson. If they are, you know, starting to go to different competitions, maybe they're a higher advanced belt, red belt, black belt, you know, look for the private lesson. They're going to get so much benefit out of that. They're going to get, you know, that microscope that they maybe need in order to get them to that further level. Or, you know, especially adults, I highly recommend private lessons because then you're going to get more attention on the details that 
adults are a little bit better at putting that focus and that effort. Although kids can often learn faster, it takes them a little bit to learn the whole discipline side of the martial arts too. Yeah, and I know, like for me personally, the speed yeah. of and that it results is that part where, like, I'm you know I have the the financial wherewithal because I'm doing it as like a part of our business and to help you know impact our bottom line and that kind of stuff. But you know, I also have like. I'm not young anymore, so I would like to learn all these things as soon as possible and get myself to the where, where I want to go as soon as possible. So for me, that decision was like, hey, I want to have one-on-one -on -one training and I'm willing to invest in that. And so, you know, if, hopefully if people are, are thinking through that and, you know, those are just some of the, the decision points that you might be looking at. Yeah, and, and another aspect would be like, you know, we both travel, so, you know, at this moment in time, I can't be at a school <laughs> physical location 12 months out of the year, you know, so that, that makes it a little bit difficult. And, you know, for the people who are traveling, they may only have the ability to do one-on-one -on -one online training. There's not many schools that do group online trainings just because it becomes very difficult to manage and see a whole bunch of people, you know, performing on online. Now, I know Gracie, Gracie Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, they have an online course where you follow their program and you submit a video of you doing whatever technique they're showing on video and you submit it back to them and they basically certify that you know that technique. We don't, I personally don't do that, although I will be creating small videos on different techniques, exercises that you can do at home. I don't see that as a potential path to take because in between learning that there's a lot of pitfalls that and feedback that is required in a stand-up fighting that maybe you don't get from a video and that maybe not everybody has that awareness to do specific things on their own they require more input yeah i would definitely agree with that um I, the, I feel, I feel having, that's a good, good uh, yeah having a coach is just so much better <laughs> so much better yeah i feel like that's a good stopping place for today pretty much you know covered you know, how to get from the novice to that advanced stage of development in martial arts, how no matter how long you've been training, I don't care if you're 10 or 80 years old, it's a lifelong learning. It's a continuous development. And, you know, you know we are always refining. Otherwise, we're going to start to rescind on our skills and how important it is to train other aspects of the martial arts so that you can improve the mastery of the martial arts in itself. And, you know, training other things, we can always bring those things back to our actual martial arts training and how martial arts transforms our physical, our mental selves, and how incorporating tradition with innovation can help us get to a new place and transform the world of martial arts. Because again, the, the goal is always to spread peace and become the warrior inside so that we don't have to become the warrior out, outside. But we're always ready to defend ourselves because that's the whole point. And uh, you can check us out on fairacademy.com slash you. Make sure to like, subscribe, and we will see you all for the next episode. Thank you for joining Victor and Andy on The Unlimited You. Make sure to visit our website, www.fairacademy.com, where you can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Spotify, or via RSS so you'll never miss a show. If you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too.
Be sure to tune in next week for our next episode.